I want you to remember back to when you were a child, okay? Remember back to when you were a child. Some of us not as hard because we're still children in heart, at least. I want you to remember back to when you were a child and reminisce on all of those family road trips. You ever take a family road trip? I know uh, my family didn't take too many very long road trips, but we would take road trips, and I know Jensie's family uh, went on a ton of road trips. What do you remember most about those road trips? When you think back to those road trips, you, you probably have fond memories of your siblings or, or your parents or, or, or whatever the case might be, playing games with them or camping with them or, or whatever it might be, right? You may remember the beautiful landscapes that you saw or, or some type of, of great all-striking moment in nature or something like that. Or, or if you're like Jensie's parents, you probably remember the time you left one or more children at a rest stop and didn't notice it for a good long while until you had to turn around before the time of cell phones, right? You ever leave your kid at a rest stop? We remember these things. We remember uh, what, it's, what it's like to be on a road trip and myself, if you were to ask me, Ben, do you like road trips? I, I would say yes, for the most part. I like road trips. I like getting on the open road and having some corn nuts and a sun drop. And I like listening to a podcast and listening to some music. And I, I like road trips for the most part. However, I will admit that since I was a kid, since I was very young, even to this time now, even though I'm the one driving, I catch myself asking, are we there yet? Are, are we there yet? And, and you can probably, it's no stretch of the imagination to see that I was the are, you, are we there yet kid. That I was the are we there yet kid, and, and to this day I, I still am in a lot of respects. And I was that kid that was bored out of my mind as a five-year-old asking this same question over and over again. And the thing about these kind of kids, myself included, is it doesn't matter how many times they've asked this question, they just keep asking it over and over again. It, it might have been five minutes ago, right? They might have just asked 30 seconds ago, but they're still going to pipe up from the back screaming, Are we there yet? Even though we all hate that kid, let's just be honest. Even though I am that kid think we can all relate a little bit to the are we there yet kid because we all ask that question from time to time it may not be in in the context of a road trip but but we ask the question are we there yet in many different parts of our life I think we can relate to the are we there yet kid because sometimes we feel like we have to be getting close to the end of this journey surely we have to be getting close concluding this thing I mean we've been going on and on and on and can we just get there already unfortunately it doesn't matter how many times the kid asks the question it's not going to speed up the journey is it it doesn't matter how many times that kid cries from the back are we there yet it's not going to make you closer to your destination you're trying to reach and it will almost always be answered with a resounding no from the parents in the front seat, right? Tonight in our last study, 
in our series, To Be Continued, we're going to be asking the question, are we there yet? We're going to be asking the question and asking ourselves, what, what is still left to be restored when it comes to the Lord's church? We're going to be asking ourselves, what, what aspects of our worship and our practices have not yet been restored to the pattern that we find in the New Testament. The past two quarters of study has taken us over a a, a long journey, but a journey that I believe to be a powerful one. A powerful journey that, that parallels world history, our history, God's Word, and our lives together into one study called To Be Continued. In phase one of our study, we had a a biblical basis for restoration. We talked about uh, restoring the church that God intended for us to be. That's the destination for our restoration. We talked about not drifting to the right or drifting to the left, and that was our introduction to the movement. And in phase two, we, we, we talked about the foundation of the movement that we've been studying. And and we went back into world history and we kind of connected that to how we got to be where we are tonight. In phase three, we had a formation of the movement and and all these prolific moments in our history that that bring us to where we are tonight. In phase four, we talked about the instruction of the movement. In phase five, we talked about the ultimate division of the movement. And in phase six, we continue in continue on into tonight we're talking about the continuation of the movement and tonight I want to make something very clear our our lesson tonight is not a conclusion of this study our lesson tonight is not a conclusion to our series to be continued in fact it could not be more opposite than a conclusion Because tonight our lesson is a challenge, it it is a plea, it it is a marching order for all of us to continue the movement. Tonight in our lesson, it is a beginning point of where we go from here. Where we go tomorrow and into next week and into next month and into the rest of our lives when it comes what we've been studying. To say that that you could possibly conclude a series entitled To Be Continued would to be would to go would be to go against everything that this class has taught us to this point. Our restoration of the Lord's church is to be continued. And as we've talked about multiple times over the past few few times together we are not there yet in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 the past couple of classes together we've really honed in on on our on our theme passage for our study together in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 27 Paul says that he might present her to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that she should be holy and without blemish are we there yet no 
And we've said that multiple times the past few weeks. But, but tonight, when we look at this passage, and tonight when we think about what we're going to be studying tonight, we're going to be focusing on a few things that are yet to be restored throughout the brotherhood. And the hope is that it will cause each of us to not only want to, to, to think about these things, but, but to pour through the scriptures for ourselves and try to find more and more things to restore to what God intended for them to be. But tonight, I just want to focus on five things. And, and again, these, these five things are not an exhaustive list of things that are yet to be restored. There are, there are many other things that need to be restored that are yet to be to be restored. But the five we're going to be talking tonight are, are things that I frequently think about and things that I think are very important. Before we get started breaking down those five things, though, I, I want to say some things up front. Before we get into this study, I want to say a few things about these five things. First of all, the message that we are having tonight is not intended or targeted specifically to you and me at the Buford Church of Christ. Instead, what we're going to be talking about tonight are things that need to be restored throughout all the brotherhood. These are going to be things that, that are issues all over the nation, all over the world, throughout the Lord's church. But having said that, we have to realize Buford is a part of that brotherhood, aren't we? Buford is a, a part of the brotherhood, and therefore, there are going to be some things that we need to think about. There are going to be some things that we need to hear, and, and when we hear those things, there are going to be some things that we need to consider honestly, with humility, and with an open spirit. Secondly, I want to I say that this message tonight may not be what you think needs to be restored. Maybe in your mind you, you have a whole different set of lists of things that you think of when you think of what needs to be restored back to the pattern of the New Testament. Maybe because of your own personal study, you have your own working list of things that need to be restored. And if that's the case, then great. That's the reason we have Bible study is to where we can have communication and we can have dialogue and we can have discussions and we can grow and sharpen one another. The point of Bible study is to stir one another up to more thought and to further study. However, just because what we discuss tonight is not what you think needs to be restored doesn't mean they don't need to be restored. And lastly, I want to say that this message tonight is going to address some very serious and very, perhaps, difficult things for us to think about. But remember, in our illustration from way back, uh, many weeks ago, the restoration is, is shearing back those layers of wool on that overgrown sheep. And it's a painful process, and it's a hard process. It's a hard process to, to restore that sheep back to her former glory. On top of the difficult nature of 
our study tonight. On top of, uh, on top of the difficult uh, uh, themes and, and discussion we're going to have is the limited time that we have. So perhaps maybe I say things and you wished I had gone a little bit farther on them. Or maybe you wished I had, had spent a little bit more time on a certain issue. Well, good news is restoration is to be continued and we can continue to have that conversation after we leave here tonight we can continue talking about and I, we need to continue talking about all of these things that we're going to be discussing tonight and with all of that being said I want to ask ourselves the question when we get started tonight are we there yet when we look at this passage and, and we think about the past few weeks and we think about this whole study and, and what has led to, to this point tonight and all that we've talked about and all that we've studied, are we there yet? Of course not. Of course not. The first thing that we are not there yet. When it comes to our faith and, and our walk with God is this idea of unity unity a few weeks ago it wasn't that long ago we we talked about the division that exists in the lord's church it wasn't too long ago a few weeks ago we we talked about the unity that should exist in the lord's church if you remember that lesson but i hope you remember we also talked about the division that exists among our own brethren but in that lesson on unity, we, we, we talked about the importance that the New Testament places on unity. We talked about how Jesus himself, and, and one of the last things he ever said before he went to the cross was a prayer that we might be one. Just as the Father and the Son are one, he prayed that we might be one. And, and in that lesson, we even talked about the importance that Paul places on unity. And how he pled with the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 10 that, that we would speak the same thing and be of the same mind and in the same judgment. And how Paul says that we are to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. We've talked about unity a lot in this class, but tonight I want to ask a question. Tonight I want to ask each of us to think about this question honestly. And the question is, how can we claim to have restored the church God intended for us to be if we have resigned to the fact that there are congregations who have drifted to the right and congregations who have drifted to the left and we don't want to do anything about it? Let me ask you the question again. How can we claim to be the church that God intends for us to be, if we have full knowledge that there are congregations who have drifted to the right and who have drifted to the left, and we don't want to do anything about it. But not only that, not only that, the divide among those groups and among those congregations has, has grown so large that there's a lack of interest to ever pursue unity. The divide has grown into a refusal to fellowship with one another. 
So much so, and so toxically so, that whenever someone asks about the church of Christ, or whenever you tell about the church of Christ to someone, they know whether to ask, now what kind of church of Christ are you talking about? You ever run into that? You know how impossible it is to evangelize and tell the world that, that we are the one church. We, we're non-denominational and, and, and we are a part of the Lord's church. But here in the own town, there's three different kinds. And they look at you and they say, well, what kind are we talking about? What kind of church of Christ? How sad of a question is that? but it gets asked to me all the time. And we see it every day. Does that sound like we're there yet? When you hear that and you think how that is the, the message that we put across the world, that, that we're the church of Christ, but you have three different flavors. Does that sound like we're there yet? Does it sound like we are the church that God intended us to be? A completely disunited and confusing image to the world. Is that what God intended? I think not. But more disturbing even than that when we think about unity. Way more disturbing than that to me is the fact that within our brotherhood, we have grown more and more fine with the fact that there are what we call black churches and what we call white churches. Does that sound like we're there yet? If we've just resigned to the fact that, that they have their church and, and they have their church and we have our church and, and there's a black church and there's a white church and there's a Hispanic church and there's a Korean church and and they're all their own churches. Does that sound like we're there yet? When we look at the brotherhood today, I think there is a thought out there that that's perfectly fine. That it is perfectly fine for there to be churches, entire congregations separated off from others. We've convinced ourselves that maybe it's even preferable that way. I remember asking, or someone in my family once asked someone, why, why, why is there this divide between churches? We have our church here on West Hobbs Street, and literally the next, the next church over, the, the next street over is another church. It's a black church. Some of my family said, why is it that way? Why don't we try to unite with these people? And the response was, that's, that's how we like it. So don't tell me this isn't a real thing, and don't act like this isn't a real thing that we experience all the time. We see it all the time, and we know that it exists, and we even use that verbiage ourselves. But the question I have for us tonight is, is that what God intended. In God's eyes, brethren, there's no such thing as a black church. 
There's no such thing as a white church. There's no such thing as a Korean church or a Hispanic church or whatever church you might come up with. All there is in God's eyes is Christ church. Amen? How many of you weren't comfortable saying amen? In God's eyes, there's only one church. And if we are not actively pursuing the unity in trying to become one church that Christ died for, we have completely missed the point of our faith. We have completely missed the point of our faith to begin with. The question I have for us tonight is, are we trying, are we even attempting to go to those congregations that are left of us and, and try to study God's word with them? Have a discussion with them. Are we even trying to, to go to those congregations that are on the right of us and, and on that other end of the spectrum and try to study God's word with them? To try to show them what God's word says or, or to have a dialogue or to have a discussion with them in any way, shape, or form? Are we going to these congregations that seemingly are only there because they aren't the other race? Are we going to those congregations and saying, what more could we do together than apart? Are we actively pursuing true unity in the spirit and the bond of peace? Or do we just like to talk about it? Do we just like to act like we are? Unity is still something yet to be restored if we are ever going to be who Christ needs us to be. But also, discipline. Discipline is another element that we can find clear New Testament pattern on, and yet, in many ways, it has not been restored to our practices in the brotherhood. Church discipline. I want you to turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says, But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, disorderly and not according to the tradition which he has received from us. There's the verse. You know, church discipline may be the most neglected and forgotten commandment in all the Bible. We look at this verse and, and we read this verse and, and we hear this verse and we know that it's there. Sadly, the only thing we ever see churches withdrawing from is the verse itself. We know, let me say that again, we know the verse is there, we, we've read that verse, we're aware of that verse, and we know congregations are supposed to be actively practicing this command. He says, I command you, brethren. We know it's there. 
But sadly, sometimes, in a lot of congregations, the only thing that we see withdrawing from is ourselves from this verse itself. Almost the entire brotherhood has abandoned this commandment as if it was never there in the first place. It has become almost a taboo subject in a lot of places. It has become a, well, let's not talk about that, really. I mean, let's not really get into that. It's become one of those types of issues. The New King James Version says, those who walk disorderly. English Standard Version says, who is walking in idleness. New American Standard says, those who lead an unruly life. You know, it's easy for us to think about withdrawal and think about church discipline and think about this commandment from God when it's the easy cases, right? When it's the obvious case. When it's the obvious case, it's a lot easier to withdraw fellowship. But what about 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6? When it just says, we need to withdraw from those who are walking idly. Those Christians who are lazy, those Christians who don't show up, those Christians who are not actively engaged. We need to withdraw from those who are walking idly. What do you do with that? How do we deal with that? Let's just turn around and not do it. But if it's obvious, if it is, if it is an obvious case, that we need to withdraw fellowship. What's an obvious case? 1 Corinthians chapter 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 11, Paul says, But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not to even eat with such a person. And we read that verse and we're like, Yeah, we don't need to do that. We don't need to fellowship with those types of people. That's the obvious case. But church discipline seems to me like pretty much any other thing. You're going to have two ends of the spectrum. You're going to have one end of the spectrum that is, is almost excited to practice church discipline. Almost wishing that they could practice church discipline. They want church discipline to be so prevalent in the church that we're withdrawing from someone on a weekly basis. That we're going up to the pulpit and naming people every day. That end of the spectrum wants church discipline to be used as a first resort. And you have the other end of the spectrum. And the other end of the spectrum is so scared of what might happen if we actually practice that command. The other end of the spectrum is so scared that perhaps they're trying to avoid placing themselves in some sort of liability. After seeing some examples of, of congregations being sued for defamation in our day and age. If you don't know what I'm talking about, in 1989 there was a congregation, Collinsville Church of Christ in Oklahoma. The congregation withdrew from a, from a woman. She sued the congregation for defamation, and she originally won. 
congregation appealed that, and they wound up winning based off of what God's Word says. It's a fascinating case. If you're not aware of it, you need to go to YouTube. Why is it on YouTube? Because it made it all the way to the Phil Donahue show. I wasn't born when that show was going, I'm sure, but I've seen that episode multiple times. It's a fascinating example. You need to go check this out. It's on the Phil Donahue show. It was, it was a national scope looking at the idea of church discipline. But because that one instance blew up on that national scope, church discipline throughout all the brotherhood has declined more and more to the point we hardly see it today. Church discipline brethren, was not just thought up on a whim. Paul didn't just one day randomly say, hey, I want to kick some folks out. I'm going to write 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 6. Brethren, church discipline was thought of and, 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 get, and inspired by the all-knowing God. It doesn't matter if it don't make sense to us. It doesn't matter if we don't understand why it's a command. We don't treat any other command that way. We trust that God knows what's best for us in every other phase of our faith but this one. Church discipline wasn't just thought up on a whim. The Holy Spirit of an almighty and all-knowing God inspired Paul to command us to do this. Brethren, church discipline is not something we should be excited to do. But it's also not something we should be scared to do. Church discipline should not be something we are jumping the gun on. But it also should not be something we are running away from. Church discipline is a last resort. To save a soul from being eternally lost. And it's commanded by God. I think it's fair to say that we are not there yet. When it comes to discipline. And restoring it to the way God intended for it to be. We're also not there yet when it comes to leadership. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. If you turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6, you're going to find what many, many believe to be uh, the first institution of deacons in the New Testament. Though I will say in the text it doesn't explicitly call them deacons, I do believe that it is no stretch of the imagination or even a stretch of the text to believe that that's what's going on here in the passage. In, in Acts chapter 6, the apostles were so busy serving tables for the widows that the spreading of the gospel was being hindered. And the apostles, because of this, they appointed seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And they gave them their task to do this. Their task was to serve. The deacon's task is to, was to serve the church in Jerusalem, while the apostles were able to focus on the lost. In Jerusalem. It was for this reason the church has elders and deacons. 
And the question I have for us tonight is, how can we claim to have restored the church God intended for us to be if our deacons won't deacon and our shepherds can't shepherd? How can we claim to be the church that God intended for us to be if deacons won't deacon and shepherds can't shepherd? Throughout the brotherhood, this is an issue. It is an alarming trend that for some reason there are plenty of men who are qualified, who are willing to do the work, but the moment they are asked to do so, the work goes undone. And when this happens, when this happens in the church, when it happens to leadership in the church, elders have to become nothing more than superdeacons. Because they aren't able to focus on the job that God was giving them. Because instead they have to focus on the job the deacon was supposed to be doing. Now let me, let me say this, not just you deacons. Sometimes elders refuse to give the key to the deacons. Because they're so uh, uh, obsessed with, with wanting it done right or, or wanting it done a certain way or, or they refuse to relinquish that kind of control that they never empower a deacon or trust a deacon to get the work done. Brethren, when we think about the offices of deacon and elder. This is not just a status. This is not just a, a, a status symbol. These names are, are not just a hierarchy of, of who's who at the Buford Church. The offices of deacon and elder are serious responsibilities that God has established serious expectations for. The question we ask ourselves tonight is, are deacons rising up to be the true servants that the church needs them to be? And are elders so focused on overseeing that they never shepherd? In a lot of places throughout the brotherhood, we are not there yet when it comes to leadership. But we're also not there yet when it comes to fellowship. Turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41, a very common passage we all know. The Bible says, Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together, and had all things in common, and, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily and with one accord in the temple, Breaking of bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. You know, when we look at this passage, it's, it's hard to even picture such fellowship. 
it's hard for me to wrap my mind around this level of fellowship. When you look at the fellowship the church in Jerusalem had, it says that what? It says they were together. That they had all things in common. That they took care of each other with whoever had a need. But more than any of that, it wasn't just on Sunday. More than any of that, they... They weren't just together, and they didn't just have all things in common, and, and they didn't just help each other with whatever, whatever they need. They didn't just do that on Sunday. What does it say they did? Daily. Daily. Daily they were together. They were with one accord, with the gladness and simplicity of heart. Why? How could they stand to spend that much time together? Some of y'all don't want to hang out with me every day, I'm sure. How could they spend that much time together? They could spend that much time together because they had realized they had been added to the kingdom of Christ. That because they had been added to the church, that they had a family that they were now brothers and sisters who were a part of something exponentially bigger than themselves. You know, we could spend the rest of our lives breaking down Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47, and at the end of our lives, never grow tired and never find enough things to say about how powerful the fellowship of the church of Jerusalem was. But I have a question. Does Acts chapter 2, 41 through 46 sound like us today? You know, we got a lot of fellowship groups and we have a lot of fellowship opportunities, I think more so than, than a lot of congregations. Sometimes my calendar can't even keep up. I understand what you must feel like because I feel the same way. We have a lot of groups for owls and for eagles and for a hundred a host of other birds, I'm sure. You know what I love about the church in Jerusalem? They didn't have any age groups. I love our age groups, and I love hanging out with the young families, and I love... I love visiting with the owls, and I, I, love, I love our age groups. I'm not trying to say we shouldn't have age groups, but, but what I do love about the church in Jerusalem is it says they all had everything in common. It wasn't just people who were the same gender or were the same age bracket. It was the whole church had everything together and everything in common. And when we say in common, we're not talking about they were all just similar people it doesn't mean that they were all five foot five it it means that they had all been made one because of what christ had done for them brethren we need to fellowship more we need to fellowship more if the pandemic taught us anything about our walk with Christ, it's that we need to be near one another. 
we need to be with one another. Whether we admit it or not, whether you are an introvert or not, you need your brothers and sisters in Christ. And we get that through fellowship. We have got to fellowship more with one another. Because that's how God designed it. That's how God wants it. And at the end of the day, that's exactly what each of us need. When you look at this passage in Acts chapter 2, and so many other passages throughout the New Testament, it's obvious to me that we are not there yet when it comes to fellowship. Lastly, really rich coming from me, but we are not there yet when it comes to evangelism. Now I know I'm the evangelism minister and, and, and I have to talk about evangelism, perhaps that's your perception, but, but the reality is we are not there yet when it comes to evangelism. When it comes to evangelism in our day, I do not believe, and I think the Bible says, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll even admit it. That we're not there yet. You know, I don't think we give the adequate credit to the individual members in the book of Acts. Let me show you what I mean. When you think about the book of Acts, it's easy for you to see themes of, of growth and expansion and, and all these wonderful things and the church growing exponentially, but, but who do you think about when you think about that growth? If you're anything like me and, and you study God's Word, and it's very difficult to not read the book of Acts and be inspired by all of these giants of the faith, right? It's hard not to read the book of Acts and focus in on Philip the Evangelist or Peter or John or Paul or Barnabas or Silas and to be blown away by what they did for the growth of the Lord's church. But have you ever thought about what happened after the missionary left? Have you ever thought about what the church did after the missionary would leave? We find example after example of some churches folding and crippling, right? Not all the time. What would happen when Paul would go to the next town? What would happen when Barnabas and Silas would, would go off to the next town? What would happen was it was up to those members individually to continue proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Christ. If you go to the book of Acts, it's amazing to see those verses about the growth of the church and how the church was growing exponentially, basically on a daily basis. It was spreading like wildfire. And the one thing we forget to realize is it wasn't just those missionaries responsible for that growth. It took men going to their families and telling them about the gospel. It took women going to their families and telling them about the gospel. It took members going to their co-workers and telling them about the gospel. It took members going to their friends and telling them about the gospel. 
you know, Paul is great. My middle name is Paul. Paul, I, I might be the biggest Paul fan in the room tonight. But you know, if those individual members weren't evangelistic at heart, what would Paul's work have amounted to? If those individual members didn't believe it in the core of who they were, what would have happened to those congregations that Paul and Barnabas and Silas went all throughout the region to establish? Brethren, we are taught so that we might turn around and teach others. We are saved so that we might turn around and attempt to save another. It's great if a Christian goes through his whole life producing the fruit of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentle self-control, and, and your whole life is, is, is filled with producing that fruit. But if you don't produce the ultimate fruit, if you don't produce the ultimate fruit of another Christian, what does the love matter? What does the, the, the self-control matter? What, what does the fruit of the Spirit matter if you aren't ultimately producing fruit of more children and more souls from being eternally lost? You ever thought about if the first century church had the mindset about evangelism that we have today? Oh. What if the first century church had the mindset that we have about evangelism today? Well, I'll just let Paul and Barnabas handle all that evangelism stuff. I'll just let Silas and Timothy take care of all that soul winning business. That's some dangerous stuff. That's some awkward stuff. I don't want to be awkward. I'll let them handle it. Brethren, I'm, I, this might be bad news for you tonight, but if you are a disciple of Christ, evangelism is not an option. Amen? If you are a follower of Christ, evangelism is not a choice. If you want to wear the name of Christ, then you have to, you must help others wear it too. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. We're going to read about just a random guy. What was said about that random guy. He wasn't Paul. He wasn't Barnabas. He wasn't Silas. He wasn't Timothy. He wasn't Peter. He wasn't John. His name's Jason. Acts chapter 17 and verse 6. But when they did not find him, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. The leaders of the city drugged Jason and some brethren out into the streets and said, These people, these are the people that have turned the world upside down. 
not Paul and Peter and John and James and all those people. It was Jason and these random guys, these random men and women who were dragged into the streets and, and they were held responsible for literally, in their minds, turning the world upside down. That's what we see in the book of Acts. We see random members turning the world upside down for Christ. I love studying about Paul and Philip and, and Barnabas and Silas. But it was Jason who they said turned the world upside down. It was those who, who were scattered abroad throughout the world that were said to have turned the world upside down. It was your everyday brother or sister in Christ that spread the gospel to the four corners of the known world. And it was your everyday brother or sister in Christ that took the gospel all the way to the household of Caesar himself. If you turn to Philippians chapter 4 and verse 22, Paul greets those who are in Caesar's household. If we ever want the church be what God intended for her to be. If we ever want to grow, every single one of us is going to have to grow in our willingness to evangelize the lost around us. We are definitely not there yet when it comes to evangelism. When it comes to the willingness to tell others about Jesus, they were willing to do it to the point of death. We avoid telling others about Jesus because it may be awkward. Tonight, as we bring this lesson to a close, if there is one thing I want us to take away from this class, not just tonight, but over the past six months together, it is that the restoration movement is not complete. We are Far from what God intends for us to be. And because of this, we should spend the rest of our lives aspiring to be the church He deserves for us to be. If you take away one message, one single thing from all of our time together, it is that God wants the restoration to be continued by you. God is depending on you to restore his church back to what he died for her to be. The church today is in as much need of restoration as it was 200 years ago. The church today is in just as much need as any time in our history as a, as, as a body of Christ. What we talked about tonight is just the hem of the garment of what we need to continue restoring. And guess what? We don't have apostles walking around. We don't have miraculous measures of the Holy Spirit today. But guess what we do have? We have that which is perfect, and it has come, as 1 Corinthians 13 says, and it is enough to help us know everything we need to know about how to restore the church to what God intended for her to be. And the restoration plea is just that. It's a plea. It is a plea to object 
tradition and to reject comparison and to vanquish defeatism and to deny consumerism. It is a plea to speak where the Bible speaks and to be silent where the Bible is silent. It is a plea for all of us to become the church that God intended for us to be. And we may not be there yet, but if we devote ourselves to the scriptures and to Christ, we can be a little closer tomorrow than we were today. Bill Humble has been our number one resource throughout our study. I want one more quote from him. This is how he closes his book, The Story of the Restoration. He says, The restoration of the New Testament church is a heritage which we have received from the past. But it is also a challenge which we face in the present. As long as the 20th century church, we're in the 21st century now, by the way, as long as they lack the fervor and the spirituality of the early Christians, as long as it is, com as it is complacent and materialistic and apathetic toward a lost world, the restoration of the New Testament church must be a continuing challenge which calls every Christian anew. I have enjoyed this class and the challenge it has been to me. I have enjoyed taking us back through history and, and to the scriptures and, and learning alongside of you about why we are the way we are tonight and how we find ourselves where we are tonight. But I do wonder something. I wonder what our brothers and sisters will say about us 200 years from now. 200 years from now when someone is conducting a, a study on the history of the Lord's church, what will they say about our generation? Will they say about our generation that we were the ones who, who resumed the restoration movement? Or will we be the ones that were just like another, other generations before us who gave way to the stagnation movement? When they look to us, will we be responsible for them being closer to Christ because we committed ourselves to the restoration plea? Or will we be responsible for the downward spiral that they're going to have to then pick up the pieces and put back together? The answer to that is just like the restoration movement itself. To be continued. Quick word of prayer. Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for this, this blessing of this class and the past six months together, studying our history, looking at the scriptures, looking at ourselves each and every night. Pray that you would bless us as we go from here to continue that movement, to continue that plea for restoration. Help us when we come up short. We're human we will come up short. Thank you so much for Jesus who makes everything right, who makes us blameless, who makes us free from sin. In his name we pray, amen.